And uh, for our text, we can focus on the words of verse 1, where Paul introduces himself as an apostle. And then he emphasizes that he is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And again, similarly, in verse 12, he tells us regarding the gospel that he neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Now over the last couple of occasions when we looked at this letter, or at least by way of introducing the letter, I hope you remember how uh, the churches in Galatia came under the good spell of the gospel. As the Lord Jesus Christ was held up before them in the preaching of the word, they were spiritually fascinated and drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, coming under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And then last time we saw how after that they came under a bad spell, or an evil spell, as Paul himself says to these Galatians, these Celtic people, who has bewitched you, he says, because Satan effectively was casting a spell upon them using false teachers and their false teaching to draw them ever so subtly away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a very obvious way, but in a subtle way and in a spiritually dangerous way, so much so that the apostle is afraid that some of them were not really in the faith at all. Now, what Satan does with these Galatian Christians is what he also did with many of the Christians in Corinth and what he, in fact, does all the time or what he tries to do all the time. The strategy is very plain and simple. He attacks the messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ and he attacks the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you know yourselves that the best way to attack a message is by attacking the messenger. And some people know that that's the best way to attack a message, if you can somehow bring the messenger down. And that's very true regarding the gospel. In fact, it's more true, I think, in connection with the gospel than in connection with anything else. I mean, sometimes the character of the messenger doesn't matter at all. You'll be well aware that there's a a dispute about a particular newsreader on the BBC regarding his life and conduct. Now, whatever the facts regarding these allegations, whatever the facts surrounding his life, the fact of the matter is that they have nothing to do with the message that he actually brings. I don't mean by that that um, he's qualified for, for doing that task. I'm not referring to that. All I'm referring to is that there is no connection whatsoever between the life of that person and the news that that person reads. Uh, The news is the same. The character of the messenger has nothing to do with the message. But the gospel is not like that at all. 
Now, in some ways, I suppose we'd be tempted to say it was, because the credibility of Christ and the gospel message in some ways doesn't depend on the messenger. If there was something far wrong with me, God forbid that that were so, or if it were found to be so, that would not change the truth of the gospel, the gospel of God or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not depend upon me or any other messenger. But as you know and as I know, it's not as simple as that. The reason for that is because a gospel messenger is bringing a rather unique message. The message is that the good news that God brings has the power to save and to change lives. And the life of the messenger is meant to testify to that. The way that the messenger lives or the way that the messenger speaks and conducts himself is meant to be an evidence in support of the message that he actually preaches. So, for example, if a messenger is found to be living a life that is inconsistent with the message that he actually preaches, it gives people a reason to say, oh, well, there's nothing in the message after all. Because if he himself is not an illustration of that message's power, then what warrant have we got to believe that anything that he said was true? So in that way, the messenger and the message are most certainly bound together. And that's why the Apostle Paul, for example, urges ministers like Timothy and like Titus to be an example to the believers in word and in doctrine. He exhorts them to adorn the gospel in their life and conduct to make sure that they commend it in what they say and what they do and commend it in what they don't say and what they don't do. There's a witness both ways. What you say, what you don't say, what you do, and what you don't do. Now that, of course, is a high calling. And any messenger of the gospel who genuinely has a commission from God will feel that to be a high calling and will feel it to be a heavy burden. In fact, there are many times when the minister of the gospel may say, well, why did you not send uh, a perfect, unblemished angel with this message? Why did you not send a myriad Myriads of perfect and unblemished angels with this message. I mean, Paul himself makes an an oblique reference here to an angel of heaven uh, bringing another message to you. At least if an angel from heaven brought the gospel to you, there would be no mistake. There would be no mistake in the angel's life. There would be no mistake in the angel's message. The holiness of that messenger would pervade Everything would pervade every assembly. And it's quite legitimate at one level to say, why did God not send such a holy and powerful message in the hand of a messenger who is without sin? But we can't question God's wisdom in that. And the fact of the matter is that God has ordained ordinary human messengers to be the messengers of his wonderful, glorious, and powerful gospel. I'm not saying it's the answer, but one answer to that is that the the one thing that an angel can't speak about is personal experience of the saving grace of God. They, they cannot speak about that. They can certainly speak about the saving grace of God, but they can't be witnesses to it. 
or at least they can't be witnesses to it in the sense of having personally experienced it. There is no such thing as a saved angel in heaven. The angels who sinned were lost. They will remain lost and they will never return from, to heaven. And those angels in heaven who have never sinned will never sin and will never need salvation. No such thing, therefore, and never will be as a saved angel. And therefore they cannot preach to you having tasted the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is what every truly commissioned messenger has to speak about. And I hope I speak like that. A dying man to dying men and women, but somebody who I hope and believe has tasted of the good things of God, the power of God in the gospel. And I urge it to you, urge it upon you as sinners like myself, so that you would find what by the grace of God I have found and escape death and tastes God's salvation, which culminates, of course, in the heaven that we were talking about today. The only time a perfect man preached a perfect message was when the Lord Jesus Christ himself preached. And make no mistake that had Christ himself, and I speak with reverence, had he been faulty, had, had he sinned in his words, had he sinned in his life, even once in his whole message would be invalidated. And the reason for that is because uniquely in the gospel, the messenger and the message are one. In the sense that the messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preaching himself. Now every minister is taught not to preach himself. Sometimes we fear that many do. But every minister is taught not to preach himself. And a true minister will not preach himself. But Christ preached himself. Christ had to preach himself. And it's a wonderful thing that he was able to preach himself without ostentation or any kind of uh, grandness or anything like that. In fact, people noticed about him that um, when he preached himself, he went about it in such a way that his voice was not heard in the streets. It's a strange thing. There was no shouting, no drawing of attention to himself, although he was peculiarly drawing attention to himself. It's very difficult to humbly say that you are God and that the salvation of all men and women depends upon your relationship to yourself. But humbly he said it. Humbly he said it. The message and the messenger were one when the Lord preached. It never is any other time, but it was one when the Lord preached. We don't preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus the Lord. But Christ Jesus preached himself, because he is the way and the truth and the life. Now, um, in Galatia, of course, things had come uh, to a quite a sad state of affairs. And they did so because false apostles had crept into Galatia, 
to the Galatian churches, just as they came into Corinth and elsewhere too, and they began to pervert the gospel, to preach an easier way to get to heaven. And it's no surprise when they brought this kind of message that they attacked the messenger. So again, Satan is involved in that. If you want to change the gospel, make sure you attack the people who have previously preached the gospel. When one thing is being pushed out and another thing is being brought in, it's vital that you attack the people who are maintaining, as it were, the old order. That's how Satan works. So it's necessary not just to lift up the new apostles with the new message, but to tear down the old apostles and their message. So there is a personal attack on Paul. That was present in the churches in Galatia. It was present in the churches in Corinth. That's why a large part of 2 Corinthians and a large part of Galatians here is taken up with Paul's defense of who he is. He's not just himself. He has been directly and specially commissioned by God to give the message that he is giving. Now, I'll come to that in a second, but I should have just mentioned this in connection with the ordinary ministry of the word. Uh, Ministers are subject to the same kind of standards as everybody else. But because of their particular standing in the church, it's extremely important that you be careful that you don't try and break the relationship between a minister and his people or that you don't try and denigrate his character uh, in relation to his standing before God. Although they're subject to exactly the same laws as everybody else. What I mean by that is that the devil especially targets them. They become the subject of rumors, gossip, and innuendo. And Satan's purpose in doing that is very, very straightforward. Discredit the messenger. I've discredited the message. That is very far from giving a blank check to ministers. And it's very unedifying to see people who will never accept allegations against a minister when they have been proven beyond all reasonable doubt. And then have the audacity to say, well, aren't the Catholics strange that they never accept that the priests are doing wrong? That is very unedifying. But so it is is unedifying to be spreading gossip, rumors, tittle-tattle, and even things that are of a lesser kind but have the intention of bringing down the messenger. Don't be involved in that. Don't take part in gossip, rumors, or anything of that kind until a thing is proven in lawful and legitimate ways. As Paul said to Timothy, don't receive an accusation against an elder unless it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses because Satan would rejoice in that. So, of course, Paul begins this letter by reminding them that he is himself an apostle. Now, it is a sad thing that he has to defend himself like this. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning and preached a while back, it was a wonderful thing when he found himself unexpectedly in Galatia through a strange providence when he was sick and disfigured by sickness He preached the gospel because that's where God had put him. And the result is when he preached it, as he himself describes it, they were so 
taken with the gospel. I mean, it, it just came to them providentially at the right time because that's the way God works. We're told that they received himself as though he was an angel of God, as though he was himself Christ. A wonderful thing. Of course, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have accepted anything like that or any honors like that. You'll remember that um, when John fell at an angel's feet, uh, the angel said, don't do that. Uh, give religious honor and glory to God alone. And no man or woman must ever be seen in competition with God when it comes to matters of religion. God alone is to be honoured and worshipped in that way. But nonetheless, that's how they felt. And that's how powerfully they were overcome with the gospel. But now, far from recognising Paul as the messenger who had brought it to him, they're in the place where they think, well, he's not really an apostle at all. He's not a true believer. He's not a proper preacher. He certainly know Peter. He certainly know John. He's somebody who seems to have come in late and... Who really is he anyway? And that's why he emphasizes at the very beginning of the letter that he is an apostle. You'll notice how he then emphasizes this. Not, he says, from men. Men didn't make me an apostle. Neither, he says, through man. I I wasn't commissioned by the hand of any man. Man had nothing to do with it, he says. But... Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now to understand what all that really means we have to begin by the word, uh, by understanding the word apostle. What is an apostle, or I should say what was an apostle? Apostles don't exist anymore. And please try and remember that because you sometimes see churches in places and uh, when you discover what they're like, you discover that they have apostles. Now, if these churches have apostles, all I can say to you is don't go. If you go, don't stay there. Because if you have churches that have apostles, they tend to wield authority that they should never have at all. We'll see why in a moment. But you'll discover that they'll be interfering with your life and interfering with your conduct in ways that are just not right. So if you see apostles in a church, uh, move away because there aren't any apostles anymore for reasons which we'll see in a moment. So who were the apostles? Well, the word apostle means uh, a messenger sent by a higher authority. That's really what the word apostle means, a messenger sent by a higher authority. And I suppose the tricky thing is that Like other words in the Bible, it's used in a formal sense and in an informal sense. There are other words like that too. Take, for example, the word diakonos, which means a servant. Sometimes it's used in that sense. For example, we're told that Phoebe was a servant of the church in Rome. But it's also used in a technical sense as a deacon. That's the name of a formal office in the church where a person has a formal commission to be a servant. So you've got the informal sense of service and the formal sense of being a deacon. Now the same is true with apostle. Uh, 
Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes the word is used in an informal sense. For example, when Barnabas was sent on a commission by the church, he's referred to as an apostle. So he's effectively a delegate of some kind or another, sent by a higher authority, sent by the church. So I suppose in that sense you could still use it very loosely and informally, providing you know it's being used loosely and informally. If, if somebody was sent, say, by the presbytery on a, on a message somewhere, you could say loosely that he's being an apostle. He is sent by a higher authority with a message. But normally in the Bible, the word apostle has a very formal sense. It refers to the ones we know as the twelve. The twelve. Who were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of a wider body of disciples who were following him more or less all the time. Out of that body, he chose twelve. You'll remember that he chose them after a night of earnest prayer before God. Our Lord went all night to pray before he chose the twelve. That's no doubt setting an example for us generally in life that whenever an important decision is taken we spend special time in prayer with God. Our Lord did that. How much more we should do that. And so when the morning came He called his disciples, and out of them he selected twelve. He called them directly. He called them by name. He didn't tell anybody else to select them. He called them, and the result was that he taught them personally. The twelve were with him everywhere, and the twelve were with him all the time. And they were taught in a unique way by him, so that when he died, they would fulfill or complete, if you like, his ministry. These apostles carried full authority in the church. That's why I'm warning you against any congregations or churches that have apostles. Watch their authority. But these genuine 12 apostles had full authority in the church. They had authority to establish congregations everywhere, They had authority to give doctrine and teaching to these churches and they had authority to tell these churches how they were to be governed by elders and ministers on parity and deacons with them. So all that, all these governmental rules and teaching and instruction were given by Christ directly the apostles and I suppose chief of all these duties was to write scripture just like this letter that we're reading here and these scriptures would be the rule the apostolic rule to guide and direct the church until the end of time and when these letters are finished with the book of revelation in about 67 or 68 AD the bible closes Jerusalem is destroyed, the apostles die. Until at last, John, of course, dies and apostles are no more. You'll notice too that these apostles are equipped with special power 
to perform signs and wonders. And these signs and wonders are authenticating their commission. And that's important. I mean, how do you believe someone who says that they have a brand new word from God? I mean, what, what are your credentials for saying so? Well, all these apostles were endowed with signs and wonders. For example, the ability to speak languages that they had never spoken before. The ability to pick up serpents and not to be hurt by them. The, the uh, ability to heal the sick. On some occasions, the ability to raise the dead. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, when I preached the gospel to you, it was accompanied with the signs of an apostle. These powers are not in the church anymore. I'm conscious that there are churches that claim to have such powers. I don't believe them. Don't think any of us should believe them. Um, These church powers were given to the apostles for a special time and for a special purpose. Miraculous powers of that kind were not meant to be vested in people until the end of time. Um, That's another theme for another time, but it's enough just to say that now and to emphasize to you that there was no higher authority than the twelve. That's why they never appointed successors to themselves. When they died off, they simply died off. And when the Bible was complete, their work was complete. And that's why their names are recorded in a special way in heaven. We're told in Revelation 21:14 that the church that God is building has the Lord Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone, but the twelve foundation slabs on which the whole edifice is built contains the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the number of apostles doesn't just run on and on and on, down through the years and generations. There are twelve apostles of the Lamb, and the church is built on that foundation. They wrote the scriptures, they gave the doctrine, And they gave us the government. They themselves rest on the chief cornerstone. Christ is the rock on which the church is built. Not Peter. But Peter and the rest of the apostles are giant foundation slabs. Upon which the whole of the rest of the building is built. Now you'll excuse me for labouring that point in a way. But it's just important to understand. And keep it in your minds that apostles were special people. Specially called. Specially equipped. Specially privileged, having special responsibility. Uh, What a shocking thing it was, by the way, for Judas Iscariot to fall from that position. What an awful shocking thing it was, although his place, as the psalm tells us, was taken by another. So an apostle is directly called by Christ and directly taught by Christ. Now when Paul here claims to be an apostle to the Gentiles... He's saying, yes, I wasn't one of the original group called. It's true, I did not follow the Lord Jesus Christ myself for three years. That's true. My enemies will say it of me. I acknowledge it. All that is true. But nonetheless, he says, I was directly called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was directly taught the gospel personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite a staggering thing to say. Maybe you haven't even thought of it like that yourself. But the Apostle Paul was directly taught the gospel 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. How and when? Um, I'll come back to that uh, on another occasion. But he was absolutely taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the signs and wonders of an apostle were performed by him. And that's why he can say, for example, that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, in a way, that sounds like proud language to us. He says this in the second letter to the Corinthians, where the the same stick was being given to him, you see. And and he uses that language. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says that I, I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Who are the most eminent apostles? I would say to you that he probably had Peter and John in mind. And he says, I'm not at all inferior to them. Now, that may sound proud, but Paul doesn't mean that in a proud way. I mean, sometimes you just have to state the facts, and the facts are the facts, and they're stubborn things. That's not how Paul saw himself. When he speaks about how he saw himself, he uses very different language. For example, he describes himself to the Ephesians as less than the least of all the saints. Um, There's a sense, of course, in which that can't even strictly be true. How can you be less than the least of the saints and still be a saint? It's just Paul using language to to try to get across how he feels about himself. He says, I'm nothing. I'm I'm a nobody. And he genuinely feels that way. And so, friends, does every Christian. And it ought to be the case that the higher a person rises in office in the church, the more that person feels that he is less than the least of all the saints. And if that person does not feel that he is less than the least of all the saints, it's the best argument for him not to be in any kind of office at all. When the disciples sometimes used to argue about who was greatest in the church of Christ, how often the Lord had to come to them and say, you don't understand what greatness is. You, Peter, may think that John is greater. John, you may think Peter is greatest. Peter and John, you may think that Judas, because I have entrusted him with the treasury. I've given him the box and the collection, the duty to disperse to the poor. You might think that Judas is the greatest. But, but greatness, he says, does not consist in office. And he took, of course, a little child before them and said, whoever humbles himself and becomes like this little child, the same is greatest, he says, in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, because, he says, except you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, of course, the more childlike you become, the more you advance in the kingdom of God. You grow in God's kingdom by stooping down. You become great in God's kingdom by being humble. And God forbid that the day should come upon ourselves or upon our churches when we think that greatness consists in things like office or in things like abilities or things like gifts when it is always graces that matter to God. Does God care as much about the ability to speak as he does about the ability to show kindness and service and to put another before yourself? We are people easily impressed with gifts 
when we ought to be impressed with service. And Paul looked around him and thought, I'm less than the least of all the saints. And in fact, to leave the saints aside, when he compared himself with the rest of the apostles, what he said on another occasion was that I am the least of all the apostles. Now that sounds like a contradiction. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that he said, I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. How can he say that and then say this, that I am the least of all the apostles? Well, because in one of these statements, he's speaking objectively about who he actually is. In the other statement, he's speaking subjectively about he, what he feels himself to be. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And you'll notice why he says that. He says, I I am the least of all the apostles, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. How that hurt him. You know, your past can hurt you. It can hurt you. And and while it's true that, blessed be God, um, there is an obliteration of sin, There's a new start with God. These are wonderful things that the world can't actually give you. I mean, the world promises you new starts and new beginnings. It never actually gives them to you. God does. But although that's true, uh, there's a hurt in the past that um, just remains. I don't think Paul forgot for a day that he was instrumental in hurting God's people. He was instrumental in rounding them up in synagogues in arranging for them to be publicly humiliated, uh, disciplined, punished, physically. He actually compelled them to blaspheme. That's an awful thing. It's an awful thing. Um, In context, that means that he forced them to say evil things about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. He compelled them to blaspheme. He didn't see it as blasphemy at the time. He now sees it as blasphemy, And he looks back and says, what I did there was terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And he says, I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. Um, You may feel like that about your own past. And it's funny how the past can still break into the present. Perhaps you're even contemplating professing the name of Christ for the first time at his table. And a while back, you were thinking, well, here I am, I'm definitely a Christian and all's well. And suddenly all this is raked up. Suddenly all this comes before you. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of living in open and flagrant disobedience to God. Maybe you even made other people go in a bad direction. You feel like less than the least of all the people who are coming to the Lord's table. Less than the least of them. Well, good. Good. That's how the apostle felt too. That's how he felt about himself. And it's good for us to feel like that about ourselves. But on the other hand, he's quick to say, in reality, he says, I've got to balance this out with the fact that I am not at all inferior, even to the most eminent apostles. How? Well, he says, because Christ called me and Christ taught me. Christ called me personally and Christ taught me personally. Now, I want to, for the rest of the time tonight, just to say something about Christ's personal call. 
Next time I'll, I'll move a bit to the teaching that Christ gave him, how and when he gave him that teaching. But tonight, the fact that Christ called him personally. No mediator, but directly, a direct call from Christ. That, of course, is different from a call to the ministry today. Let's say the Lord was calling you to, to minister the word. That call would, be, would come to you through the Holy Spirit working in your heart, guiding you towards that, so that even if you felt a, a fear of it in one hand, there was a desire towards it on the other, a desire to be of service to the people of God in bringing the word of God before them, a desire to consecrate yourself to that task. And you would also be aware that that call that you felt was actually uh, to be laid before the church for their judgment and their discernment. It's for the church to say, yes, we recognize God's call in you, or to say, no, we don't recognize God's call in you. That didn't happen with an apostle. When an apostle appeared with a miraculous power of signs and wonders to authenticate a new message from God, that was the end of it. That's the end of it. There's no going behind that. There's no investigation of that. I mean, that is that. And a minister, of course, has no infallibility in what they teach, whereas the apostles had an infallibility. And when Paul's saying I'm called, he means directly. That's why he emphasizes, he says, I'm an apostle, verse 1, not from men. In other words, God, men didn't call me to be a messenger. Neither, he says, did it come through man. It's not the case that Christ used another man uh, to tell me to become an apostle. No, he says, this came to me directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the same in verse 12. I neither received, he's talking about the gospel, yet I didn't receive it from a man. I wasn't taught it by a man. But it came through the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember what happened and we read about it. This call to minister the word accompanied uh, the most famous conversion in the history of the world. Everybody knows Really, if you've had a modicum of education, really, I suppose you know about Paul's conversion. A Damascene conversion, people call it. You sometimes hear it spoken about in the political world. Well, you've had a Damascus conversion or a Damascene conversion. This is the most famous conversion in world history. And it happened, um, of course, to Paul. And it happened to him when he was on the road uh, to Damascus, the capital of Syria. Now, Paul sadly tells us that he was so enraged against this new sect of Christianity. I mean, he actually hated it. I mean, there may, there may be people, I don't know, there may be people in here tonight who hate the gospel. Uh, it's highly unlikely if you're here, uh, but it's not impossible for people who are present in the assembly sometimes to have a deep hatred for the gospel. And I've seen it before. People who were brought along by others or perhaps wandered in or perhaps came in for devilment. I've seen it. Paul hated the gospel. He believed that the message that Christ took into the world and the fact that people were following was a denial of what he thought the truth was. It was killing his culture, killing his heritage, killing his nation. 
killing all the traditions, killing the distinctiveness of the people that he belonged to, which made them great, which had made them a force in the world. All that was being taken away by Jesus Christ. And even if you're not here like that tonight, there are plenty of people in the country like that. They believe that Christianity is an evil force. They believe that the country would be better off if Christianity was just washed out of it. And if Bibles were closed and shut away and preachers were not allowed to speak in the name of Christ anymore. These are the people who shout freedom, freedom, freedom. But who want to close the Bibles and close the mouths of God's preachers. Now he went so far as to get a commission not just to stamp out this religion in the country, but to go to foreign capital cities and to stamp it out there too. Because he's aware that wherever Jewish populations existed in substantial numbers, like, for example, Alexandria in Egypt, or Antioch in Syria, or Damascus here, wherever the Jewish population existed, there was a serious threat of this new variant form taking root and destroying the Jewish nation. And so he got a commission, got letters. Is anyone else going to be zealous for this? I'll be zealous for it. I'll make sure that not only are the faithful killed, but that the faith is killed. After all, you'll notice that's what people said. when uh, Later, when Paul was converted, they said, This man is preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. He wasn't just trying to kill the faithful, the Christians, but the faith itself wanted to eradicate it. He wanted it eradicated. And when he saw people turning to Christ in places like Damascus, that was an awful thing. Now, the result was that he got authority from the Sanhedrin to round up these people, to imprison them, and if necessary, to kill them. And you'll remember on his way to Damascus that... <clears throat> At 12 o'clock, well, this is one of the great hours in world history. Just like it was a great hour in world history when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, just as it was an even greater hour in world history when at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, which is called Good Friday now by many people, the Lord Jesus breathed out his last. An amazing hour in world history. So 12 noon this year was an amazing hour in world history because a light suddenly shone from heaven accompanied by a powerful voice. And this light Paul describes as being greater than the light of the sun. And that's borne out by the fact that it blinded him for three days. Actually blinded him for three days. Now there was a spiritual parable Involved in that, but the spiritual parable does not itself invalidate the fact that he was blinded for three days. And the light that appeared to him was nothing less than the light of the glory of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't um, technically... A vision that he saw. I'm conscious that the Bible describes it as a heavenly vision. But we need to be careful how we understand vision like that. Um, <clears throat> there's such a thing as a vision that's symbolic and a vision that's real. Um, for example, when John saw the risen Lord on the Isle of Patmos, 
what he saw was a symbolic vision of Jesus. You remember how he saw Jesus clothed with his hair as white as wool, and he saw a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. Now, the Lord Jesus, in his exalted, glorified human nature, does not have a sword proceeding out of his mouth. It was a symbolic vision of the risen Lord that he saw. But the vision that Paul saw that day in Damascus was not a symbolic vision. What he actually saw was the Lord Jesus Christ as he is in glory. As he is in glory. The same kind of vision or sight that Stephen saw when he was being stoned to death. It's a wonderful thing that when Stephen was in the midst of so much pain um, that the Lord, of course, peeled back the curtain of heaven and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. He, he was given a sight of that. Now, that's more akin to this because he sees Christ as he is in heaven. That vision is given to him. Again, it's like the curtain drawn aside and he sees the Lord of glory. And I suppose in that respect it's a remarkable thing that his natural eyes are unable to bear the sight. And that would be true. If you were to go to glory tonight, your natural eyes could not bear the sight. The Bible tells us that we are receiving a new body. And the Bible tells us that the function of that new body is to enable us to carry the weight, the exceeding weight of glory that fills up heaven itself. Samuel Rutherford famously once became conscious of this. He was conscious of God blessing himself so much with a felt sense of his presence, even if it wasn't a visual thing. He was so conscious of the blessing of God that he once famously asked God to, with, to withdraw himself or to stay his hand. I've never personally had that experience. I don't know if you have. I hope I can say in a good sense that I envy that experience. But it's, wonder, it's wonderful to think that Rutherford asked God to stay his hand. That's effectively Rutherford saying, I can't, uh, I can't bear much more of this. I cannot in my weak and feeble frame um, bear the glory of your presence if it is to, to be revealed to me right now in any greater degree. That's just a way of saying that we need a new body in heaven to carry the eternal weight of glory that is going to be all around us and indeed inside us. Paul's eyes could not withstand the light of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was greater, he said, than the glory of the sun. Think of that. You need new eyes for that. And new eyes you'll have. New eyes you'll have. New legs, new arms, new everything. And new eyes to see the glory of God. Now, of course... Um, in this particular case, you're well aware that Paul was converted at the same time as he was called to preach. That, of course, is a very rare and 
um, quite an unusual thing. Most people are converted and, and they go on in the Christian life for a while before God calls them to preach. Um, Robert Murray McChain, who, uh, who was a young minister in Dundee, who died at 29, I think, maybe 28, but he said that he felt called to preach more or less at the moment he was converted. But that is a very unusual experience. But it's certainly Paul's experience. In the, in the one act, he is both converted to faith in Christ and called to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you something. It's vitally important that you distinguish these two things. It's important maybe for a few reasons, but for one very important reason, it's vital that you distinguish between his conversion and his call to preach. By conversion, of course, I just mean the fact that on that day at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, he recognized that the one he was persecuting was actually the Lord of glory. He was who he claimed to be, and he was nothing less than who he claimed to be. Paul was offended at the very idea that a mere man was claiming to be the Lord of glory. He discovered on that day that he was. This was the Messiah, the one who died on a cross, a cursed death, was actually God. <laughs> that's, a, that's a mystery. I mean, we preach these things, and we're so used to thinking about these things that we just forget the mystery of this that the Lord of glory comes into a position where he himself is cursed. But that is what Paul discovered. And he discovered on that day that the Lord Jesus Christ who was persecuting was the very person he needed for his own soul and he was the very person he got for his own soul. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing tonight if the Lord Jesus Christ whom you thought perhaps to be irrelevant or someone you were even opposed to, if you discovered that he's the very one you need, that your family needs, the very one who can make your soul live. That was his conversion. I'll say something more another time. But at the same time, he's called. Now, that's a remarkable thing. But in Acts 26, um, you may have noticed in the reading that when Christ introduces himself... As his saviour, he immediately commissions them. He says, get up and stand on your feet, he says. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of the things you've seen here just now and the things that I'm going to tell you, he says. I'll deliver you from Jewish people. You'll get plenty grief. I'll deliver you from the Gentiles too, he says, to whom I now send you. Here's his commission. How confusing all this was. A lot to process. Um, I remember Rosaria Butterfield, of course, who's in the RP Church in America, who used to be a a professor of queer and lesbian studies. And she was quite suddenly and amazingly converted herself. And I remember her speaking how, how everything had to be rethought. Everything. Her whole world, her system, her paradigm, the way she thought, everything was just turned completely and utterly upside down. From moving from becoming a professor of queer and lesbian studies to being an RP minister's wife in a short space of time. It's quite a big change in every single way. Well, this was a huge change for Paul too. To whom I now send you, he says, to the Gentiles, because through you, 
Their eyes will be opened. They will turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That's his call. Conversion and call. Now the reason I'm saying it's important to distinguish them is because the appearance of the glory of Christ and the voice of Christ directly speaking to him had nothing to do technically with his conversion. It had everything to do with his call to apostleship. Why is that important to understand? Well, because it's amazing how many times people refer to this conversion as being somehow the paradigm conversion. The conversion that every other conversion should be like. So that the experience of Paul is the experience that every converted Christian has. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is an experience that nobody else has. And it's an experience that nobody else was meant to have. Because it involves being called to be an apostle. Um, Let me put it this way to you. It's become a, a way of common speech for people to say, have you seen the light yet? That's a way some people ask whether you've become a Christian. Have you seen the light? The effect that that has on people is, oh, well, I need to see a light. And every Christian has seen a light. Uh, Paul saw a light. Um, maybe they say, well, you, you, you need to hear the voice of God speaking to you. Have, have you heard God speaking to you? And they say, oh, well, I need to hear God speak to me. Because Paul heard God speak to me. But... That's because he was called to be an apostle. You're not called to be an apostle. I'm not called to be an apostle. Nobody's called to be an apostle. Nobody sees a vision of Christ and Christ calling them to become an apostle. Nobody. If you're going to become a Christian, it's in a very different way from that. I'm not saying that the word of God wouldn't speak to you very directly. It may speak to you very directly in the seat in which you're sitting even right now. God may, may do a work in your heart very, very quickly. He may also accomplish his work quite slowly and quite imperceptibly. This conversion happened in the twinkling of an eye. Most conversions don't. There's very little about this conversion that's normative in the life of Christian people. And um, in that connection, I'm thinking of the little parable that Christ told which is only recorded in Mark's gospel it's tucked away there in a couple of verses in Mark 4 verses 26 to 29 and it tells about the kingdom of God being like a seed uh, which man plants in the ground and the man goes away and the seed grows he knows not how there's the seed first and uh, then the bud the corn the full corn in the ear, the seed that grows secretly and silently. That's more normative in Christian experience. Uh, That's why when you talk to most Christian people, they will say, well, I'm not quite sure exactly perhaps when I actually came to faith in Christ. It it, it was a gradual work. It's like... um, Sometimes, like when you when you pass from being a, a child to a man, and you go through the teenage years, and you say, when did that happen? I'm not quite sure, but it just happened. I know myself now to be an adult, and I know I'm not a child anymore. The precise point, I'm not quite sure. It's like that. I don't know exactly when, but I know that I trust 
and I know that I believe. Um, there, was a, there was a man who, sorry at my time, I, <laughs> last time I looked, I think it must have been the second hand I saw. You should have noticed it moving. Uh, my time is gone and it's well gone. But l- let me just say this in conclusion. I'll cut it short there and I can pick up the rest later on. Uh, I remember hearing of a man who used to give his testimony and he was a man who used to drink sometimes and apparently he fell into the water uh, under the influence. I'm not sure to what extent, but he fell in the water under the influence. He survived and he used to tell his experience at question meetings, at fellowship meetings. And he said, if I had died that night, everybody would have assumed I was lost. But the fact of the matter is, he says, that I was saved while I was still in the water. And God brought me out to tell the tale. But if God hadn't brought me out to tell the tale, the fact of the matter is that I was still saved in the water. And God can come that quickly and he can come that suddenly into a person's life. That's, by the way, one reason why uh, you can't just make summary conclusions about people when they die. And I'm not saying that just to give false assurance and false hope. Uh, J.C. Ryle said that deathbed repentances are... He says, I don't know, he says very often, what they mean. But it's still a fact that God can change some people in the twinkling of an eye and he can do it just before they come to the judgment seat. That is just a fact. And it's worth stating a fact because it is a fact. And that's the thing that the man went. But for most of us, there's no fire, there's no quake, there's no wind, there's no voice, there's no light. It's just a still, small voice that quietly operates in our hearts. Don't look for a Damascus Road experience. Don't wish you had it, even if you haven't got it. I've heard people say, oh, well, I wish my conversion had been more clear, you know. I I wish it had been more clear. I envy these people who had a clear transition. Well, people like that can have their own problems later. They can say things like that. Oh, I was, I was over-emotional at the time, and uh, I was vulnerable at the time, and maybe it was just all too sudden and all too quick. Notice they can have their own temptations. Don't spend your life wishing something wasn't what it was. I mean, if God took you in quietly and gently, that's God's way, and that's a wonderful thing, and be thankful for it. And when you give your testimony to someone, don't be pressurized into making it sound like a Damascus Road experience. If you didn't have one, you didn't have one. There's no kind of procrustean bed that everybody has to fit in that respect. The issue is, do you trust, do you believe, do you love? Not when. And of course, all this highlights that what Paul had, he had by grace. I mean, he had persecuted the church of God, but it's interesting that he says this, and I really mean this, that I'm concluding with this. He says this, that in verse 13, um, you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, but he says in verse 15, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me to his grace to reveal his son in me, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. He said, I didn't go and seek anyone's approval. I didn't go straight down to Jerusalem to say to Peter, is this okay? I didn't go and seek John out and say, is this okay? 
I mean, who needs any human authority to say it's okay when the Lord of glory has appeared to you? I mean, that's that. But he uses the interesting phrase that God separated me from my mother's womb. What on earth does he mean by that? Here's a man who was living in opposition to God for 30 odd years. Ah, yes, he says, but God separated me from my mother's womb. It doesn't mean that he was holy, but it does mean that he was kept and preserved by God. God knew what Paul was going to be, so God had his way of keeping and preserving him. That's an amazing thing, you know. If you become a Christian, let's say, at 30 years of age, for these 30 years you were kept, preserved, set aside by God. There's a sense in which nothing could touch you or harm you. Why? Because God had purpose and plan for you to be a Christian. That's why he separated you effectively from your mother's womb. You weren't holy at that point, but you are guarded and you are kept. And that's what he says. God, God had this for me from my mother's womb. One of the reasons I think the Bible says that and emphasizes that is because if you're converted a little, little later in life, God will actually take what you lived through and he'll somehow use it. He'll use it in your present Christian life. Uh, let's just cut there and leave it. And may the Lord bless it to us. We'll uh, close by singing uh, to the praise of God. And we'll sing in Psalm 78 in conclusion. And we'll sing at verse 70. Psalm 78 at verse 70. And uh, this, these verses are speaking about God choosing things. He chose the tribe of Judah. And then in verse 70, he chose David. That's just God's choice. Of David that his servant was, he also choice did make. And even from the folds of sheep was pleased him to take. From waiting on the ewes with young, he brought him forth to feed Israel, his inheritance, his people, Jacob's seed. That's Psalm 78, the last three stanzas. Let's stand to sing.
the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.